so just do a little catch up for those of you guys that maybe haven't uh, been able to, to be with us fully for uh, the last few weeks. Uh, the first part of James chapter 1 uh, starts out with James telling us to count it all joy, my brothers or my brothers and sisters, uh, when you meet trials of various My cutting out here, Mike. Um, that kind of messes with us to to for someone to say count it all joy when you go through trial. How, how many of you have been through something that you would consider a trial? Probably most, if not all, of us. And in those trials, uh, how many of you have thought, "Man, this is awesome." <laughs> Pro- probably not any of us. Uh, and if you have, you're a better person than I am. Uh, yet James, just like right out of the gate uh, in this letter, says count it all joy brothers and sisters, uh, when you meet trials of various kinds. And he reminds us that these trials, the testing of our faith produces something in us. There's actually a in the trials that we go through. It produces in us steadfastness. And when steadfastness has its full effect, he says that we might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so, so what we take from this is that, that God actually has a purpose uh, in the trial we go through. They pr- it produces something in us. There's a purpose behind it. Uh, and, and then he goes on to talk about some of these different kinds of trials uh, that we experience. He talks about if we lack wisdom. I can switch to this handheld mic. Uh, he talks about if we, if we lack wisdom, uh, that all we have to do uh, is to ask God, and God will give us wisdom. Uh, he talks about that when we struggle with pride, that, that God reminds us uh, that we are broken and flawed human beings, uh, all in need of a Savior. I have the same need of redemption as you do. Um, and then today, he's gonna, we're going to see that he's talking to us about temptations, another kind of trial of uh, walking through temptations. And in all of these things, God is at work producing in us a steadfastness that draws us closer and closer to him. There is no easy button in life. There's no easy button in the Christian life. Just because you come to Christ doesn't mean that there's an easy button where we can escape all of the hard things uh, that people normally go through. We, we live in a, a fallen world that's broken by sin. Uh, and there are things that are just beyond our control. Death and disease, for example, we, we don't have control over that. Every single one of us at some point, if you haven't already, is going to lose a loved one. You, you may know somebody who has cancer or some kind of debilitating disease. And those are things that, that are beyond our control. But what the Bible tells us is that in the middle of those things, something that's true for the Christian that's not true for the, for the non-Christian is that God is working for our good in every difficult thing that comes our way. And so we look at these difficult things, and we don't say that they're good in and of themselves. But what James is reminding us of is that we can have hope in the middle of difficult things, that God is working things for our good, that he's at work redeeming bad things, working them for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, according to Romans 8.28. And so we have this incredible hope as followers of Christ, we can lay our head on the pillow at night knowing that, yes, we have these difficulties happening. But the hope is that God is at work in it and God is producing in you and in me something that wouldn't be produced apart from walking through difficult things. And so there's a sense in which we can embrace our difficulties 
Again, not that we would say they're good in and of themselves, but because God alone can redeem, we, we have a hope that as we come out the other side of hard things, that there's actually a purpose in these difficult things. And so as we get into our passage today, James chapter 1, starting in verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And so James starts his letter saying, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And then as we get into verse 12, he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So James has this incredibly positive attitude towards trials. And that doesn't necessarily compute with us because we don't face our trials typically with a positive attitude. This has hit home for me in the last few weeks because my family has been walking through a difficult thing. And, And it's no coincidence that this is where the Lord has had me. Right? You remember a few weeks ago uh, when Pastor David opened the book of James, talking about counting out all joy when these trials come, talked about that he was walking through a difficult thing and his family walking through a difficult thing, and God spoke to him in that. And I can relate to that today. God has spoken to me in this and in our family's difficult trial. Blessed is the man or the man or woman, the person who remains steadfast under trial. For when they have stood the test... They will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those that love him. When James says blessed, like we we can interpret blessed in a lot of different ways, right? Um, You might say to somebody, uh, if something goes your way, you might say, like, I'm blessed because I got a job promotion. Um, You might say, if you're able in your retirement to live comfortably because you've worked a lifetime to get there, you might say, I've been blessed. Um, you might say, because we live in the greatest place in the world, I was talking to Grace about this this morning, you might say, because, I, because we live in central Oregon, we're blessed, right? And, and those things are all true. But when James is talking about being blessed, or he's not talking about being happy, at least not fully. The, the bigger meaning that James is getting at here is to be blessed is to be fulfilled. And not just fulfilled that like, like when you... Think about after Thanksgiving dinner, right? You're, you're fulfilled because you've eaten a satisfying meal. He's not talking about that kind of fulfilled. He's talking about fulfilled in the sense of being complete, that you lack nothing. And all of us, we might be able to sit here today and write down a list of all the things that we lack, right? None of us, I don't think, here is independently wealthy, and so we probably have some kind of a lack. James is talking about here blessed in the sense of not having any lack at all, being complete, being fulfilled because of who God is and what God has done for us. So even though we may have lack in this world, we lack nothing as followers of Christ right now because of who he is and what he's done for us. And so what he's saying is really is completely fulfilled is the person who remains steadfast under trial. Steadfastness, just speaking of faithfully persevering through trial. I don't know if any of you have ever walked through a a difficulty in your life that you feel like it's just crushed you, that's completely taken the wind out of your sails, right? Many of us have probably been there. 
James is talking about having a steadfastness, a faithfulness, a perseverance in trial that says, I'm going to come out on the other side of this trial. Not, not because I'm strong, not because I have it all together, not because I'm great, but because God will not let me down and God will not fail me. And when we, when we faithfully persevere through these trials, let me back up just a second. When, when James is talking about trials, he's going to talk about temptations here in a moment. But when he's talking about trials, he's talking about outward circumstances coming into us, coming into our lives. Some of the things I mentioned earlier that might be uh, outside of our control. These outward circumstances that, that come in uh, to our lives and we're all of a sudden thrust into the middle of them and forced to walk through them. That when we faithfully persevere through those things, when we stand the test, we come out of it and we receive the crown of life. Now, this is, this is going to be interesting here. There's a sense that James is talking about here in which he's saying that the point of this is not necessarily to come out of a trial victorious. That's not what he's getting at. What James is saying here is that there's a testing that happens to your faith when you go through trials that is necessary. So it's not just about coming out of it being a better person or coming out of it being stronger, coming out of it not being crushed, but, but there's a sense that James is talking about here that the trial itself for you, Christian, is necessary. Walking through the difficulty, walking through the test is necessary. So it's not just the product, as one commentator said, but it's the process that also has value in God's economy. And so these outside circumstances come at us and we're thrust into trials, sometimes with things that are beyond our control. And what's true for the follower of Christ is that process that you walk through in that trial, as difficult as it may be, is necessary. It's necessary for the testing of your faith. It's necessary for the building of your faith. It's necessary for the growing of your character. And those things are necessary because God is a redeemer, as I already talked about. God takes these things that we would say are bad, and he redeems them and says, I'm going to use these things for your good. I'm going to use these things to accomplish something in you that would not be accomplished apart from you walking through a hard thing. And it's not because God is mean. We'll get to this more in a moment, but it's because God is good. And so once we've walked through this test, this necessary testing of our faith, this necessary trial through which we've had to persevere, James says that we receive the crown of life. And what he's not talking about here is like a crown like you would think of as a king or a ruler wearing a crown. He's not talking about that kind of a crown. What he's talking about is more like, think way back in ancient times, athletes, they would present athletes with a laurel wreath when they finished an athletic competition. Maybe think of the Olympics back in Greece. This is what James is talking about when he talks about a crown of life, is the athlete persevering through the struggle and the difficulty of athletic competition and coming out of it and receiving his due reward for his perseverance. And the only way, what James is telling us, the only way to receive this crown of life 
is that we walk through the trials, that we walk through the tests. In other words, there are no participation trophies in Christianity. Right? We, we live in an age where, where everybody gets a participation trophy just for showing up. James is saying that there are no participation trophies. Right? That, that God gives us what we need to persevere through trials. He gives us what we need to be faithful. He has a purpose in these trials. He's working in us, accomplishing in us things that could not be accomplished apart from trials. And when we get to the end, we don't just get a trophy saying, hey, good job, you made it to the end. We, we get a crown of life, James says. We, we get our due reward for our faithfulness and our perseverance that's given to us by God. And if that's not enough, James tells us that God has promised this. In other words, because God has promised this, then it's a certainty. We don't have to question it. We don't have to wonder if it's going to happen. We don't have to wonder if it's true. When God promises something, it is a certainty. And he promises that not just to anybody, but he promises this crown of life to those who love him. In other words, to those who are committed followers of Christ, those who have recognized their own brokenness and their own depravity, to those who have said, God, I need you to redeem my brokenness. To those who have committed their life to, to follow Christ. Those are the ones who receive the crown of life. Those are the ones who, in these God-ordained trials that, that he allows to persevere, that he allows to be faithful, that he accomplishes a purpose in their lives. That's all, that's all pretty positive right there. That sounds really good. I, I doubt any of you are sitting out there having much of a problem with, with any of this. You're like, yeah, sign me up, right? That, that's what I want. I want to be able to walk through hard things, and I want to be able to say, count it, count it all joy. But there's another side to this, another side to this coin that James gets into in verse 13. And he says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So trials. Count it all joy to walk through these various trials. Here's some various trials that you're going to walk through. Remember that God is accomplishing his purpose in these trials if you belong to him. Good news. Warning. When you're in the middle of these trials, don't say that you're being tempted by God. And it seems like <clears throat> maybe he's switching gears here, but he's really not switching gears. Trials, if we define them as kind of these outside forces, if you will, things beyond our control, things outside of us, coming our way, and we're being thrust into the middle of these circumstances that we don't control. James reminded us, in the middle of these things that you can't control out here, in the middle of death and disease, hard things, in the middle of those things, be careful, because temptation is lurking. And he doesn't really get into what kind of temptation is lurking here, but he just reminds us, like, don't be tempted to turn away from God in the midst of your difficulty. Don't be tempted to use your own wisdom in the middle of your difficulty. Don't be tempted, for example, to isolate in the middle of your difficulty. 
Don't let the inside voice dictate how you handle these outside circumstances. I always think of when I was a kid watching cartoons. You remember the cartoons and they'd have like a little devil on one shoulder and a little angel on the other shoulder and they're both whispering in your ear, you know, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. This is kind of what James is talking about a little bit here with regard to temptation. He's talking about this inside voice saying, you know what? Here's what you really need to do in the midst of this difficulty. I know, I know that the Bible says this, but, but you know what? Here, here's how you really need to handle this difficulty. James is saying, don't be tempted. And don't say that when you're tempted, that it's God who's tempting you. Right? We, we believe that God is sovereign overall, which is to say that he's in control of everything. We, we believe that, that there's nothing that happens in the entirety of the universe that's outside of God's watchful eye. There's not one atom that splits anywhere that God is not in control of. Yet, he's also mindful of you and I. And because that's true, and because he's good, and because he's for us, because he ordains our trials, because he's working to accomplish good in us through our difficulties, he's working to accomplish good in us through things that we would say are bad, and he can do that because he's in control of everything, that it wouldn't make any sense to say that God has tempted me to do something evil or to do something bad or to do something wrong. James is warning us in here, don't, don't say that God is tempting you because he's not. In fact, the opposite is true. God is working in your life for your good, Christian, in the most horrific, difficult circumstances that you could ever think of. So don't say that you're being tempted by God because God can't be tempted with evil. Right? We believe that God is perfect and that he's holy. He's pure. There's no impurity in him whatsoever. And because that's true, he cannot be tempted by evil. We see, particularly throughout the Old Testament, we see sometimes that, that God pours out his wrath. Right? Sometimes God pours out judgment on humanity. But God doesn't do that because he's mean. God doesn't do that because... He's impure or unholy. The Bible tells us that God disciplines those that he loves. Right? Think about you as a parent. Right? As parents, we're imperfect. Right? Sometimes we might discipline our kids because we're mad at them. But sometimes we discipline our kids not because we're mad, but because we love them. And because we're trying to accomplish their good. And we use discipline in a loving way. And, and even though we do that imperfectly, God does it perfectly. And so James is reminding us, God can't be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So because he can't be tempted, he's not a tempter. Right? We, we do have somebody that tempts us, and we do have somebody that's evil. We, we call him the devil. But that's not who God is. That's not who God is. James reminds us that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. 
So when we're tempted to do things that we know are not right, it's not because these outside forces have come in and have overtaken us and overwhelmed us. This word enticed, it means a hypnotic attraction. And the idea behind a hypnotic attraction is think of a, a hungry animal out in the woods. For some of you hunters, maybe you, maybe you bait your animals. A hungry animal comes up and sees the bait. That, that's the idea of a hypnotic attraction when James says that we're enticed by our own desires. When he says that we're lured, the idea of being lured is, is a dominant force in our desire. And so all of that to say is there, there's a strong desire in us that, that lures and entices us towards sin. And it's not God's fault. I think James here would say it's not even the devil's fault. The devil capitalizes on it, but it's not his fault. You and I have an insatiable appetite inside of us that we want to be gratified by any and all means necessary. And we can either find our gratification in God or we can find our gratification in the things that this world has to offer. And I'm not saying that, that everything this world has to offer is bad. There, there are some, some good things that we can desire, right? It, it's good to desire healthy relationships. It's good to desire to, to maybe have some comforts in this life. Those aren't bad things to desire. But because we have this, this hypnotic attraction, this dominant force inside of us, we can desire things that are good in a bad way. And when we do that, James is saying it's nobody's fault but yours. And I hope it doesn't sound like I'm just piling on bad news today. That We're going to get to some good news here in a moment. But, but James is reminding us that there is one person who's responsible for your sin. And it's you. And it's me who's responsible for my sin. Nobody else. I can't say that somebody else made me do something that I didn't want to do or that I shouldn't have done. And there's one place that we, well, in many places, but one place that I think of immediately where we see this in the Bible, and it's in Genesis chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you the story. So God had, had created the heavens and the earth. He created something out of nothing. And, and as the pinnacle of creation... Uh, God made humanity. He made man and woman, Adam and Eve. He created them. And for a moment in time, creation was perfect. The creation was in perfect harmony with its creator. And I don't know how long that moment of time was. The Bible doesn't lay down a, a time frame for that. But creation was in perfect harmony for a time. And then that harmony was disrupted. And the reason that harmony was disrupted was because mankind, humanity, Adam and Eve, rebelled. The creation rebelled against its creator. They, they were living in perfect relationship with the Father. And he told them to have dominion over all the earth, to, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over it, to, to caretake, uh, be caretakers of the creation that, that he beautifully created. And he told them, that everything is yours in all of creation, except for just don't eat the fruit of this one tree over here. And of course, what did they do? Right? What do we do as humans? We don't want anything so badly until somebody tells us that we can't have it. Right? And then we want it just because somebody said no. That's our human nature. 
They had all of creation to enjoy in a perfect relationship with their creator. And he said, everything is yours except this one thing. And, of course, they went towards that one thing. And what, what does that tell us? That tells us that as humans that we have a bent towards sin. Right? The Bible would tell us that because that's true of Adam and Eve, that everybody that's came after, every human that's come after Adam and Eve, we've inherited that nature from them. We've inherited this bent towards sin. We've inherited this hypnotic desire, this indomitable force that causes us to gravitate towards sin and rebel against our Creator. Boy, the, the good news just keeps coming, doesn't it? <laughs> but but this, this is true. And James certainly would have this idea in mind when he says, be careful about temptation. Don't say that you're tempted by God because God can't be tempted and he can't tempt. When, when you have this strong pull towards sin, it's because you have a desire to go there. And let's, let's be honest, if sin wasn't enjoyable, we wouldn't participate in it, would we? If we didn't get some kind of satisfaction, we, we wouldn't gravitate towards sinful behavior. And so, so there is a part of us that, that gets satisfaction out of this. And James warns us that when you're lured and enticed by your own desire, he says that desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Right? He's using an analogy of, of, uh, that we can all understand about conception, gestation, and birth. Right? Once the process of having a baby starts, it, it doesn't stop. Right? Like Once conception happens, wheels are in motion that can't be stopped if you just let nature run its course. Right? We all understand that. And James is telling us the same thing here is true of sin, that there are, are wheels that get set in motion when we have sinful desires, that if nature just runs its course, it, they can't be stopped. That's what we see in Genesis 3 in the garden with Adam and Eve. Wheels got set in motion that through their natural course of things, they couldn't be stopped. And so what happened in Genesis chapter 3 when those wheels of desire were in motion? Adam and Eve rebelled against the Creator. The creation rebelled against the Creator. And what happened? God stepped down into the garden and He had to intervene. God had to kind of stop nature from taking its course, and we see this narrative throughout Scripture that, that this is our need to be redeemed. This is our need for the work that only Christ can do as he stepped into human flesh. Right? We're, we're seeing a picture of the gospel being unfolded here. In order for nature to not take its course, an outside force had to step in and rescue us from the results of our own desires. Because ultimately, the desires that you and I are hardwired with lead us towards sin. And sin brings death. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, kind of gives us a concise picture of this more bad news. And, and I promise we're getting to the good news here shortly. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Boy, the bad news, like it just gets worse the more we talk about the bad news. Right, the Apostle Paul is confirming what James is saying is like because of our desire towards sin, like we're in trouble. We're in trouble and we're powerless to stop this trouble. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says that, that by our nature that we're children of wrath. And if that's not bad enough, he reminds us that like the rest of mankind, all of humanity is in this same boat. So it doesn't matter what your walk of life is. It doesn't matter what your past is or what your future is. You and I are all, apart from the intervention of Christ, children of wrath along with every other human that inhabits the earth. Because we're enticed and lured by the sin that's in us. So that's the bad news. Okay, take a deep breath. Now we're going to talk about some good news. Verse 16 of James chapter 1. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good... And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So the bad news is that we have this sin that, that is inside of us. And because of our own desires, because of our own bent, our own rebellion against our Creator, we're lured and we're enticed towards things that don't please our Creator. And that's a problem. But the good news, James tells us, is not, not to be deceived, that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. Now here again, it seems like James is switching gears a little bit, because we're talking about trials, and we're talking about temptations, and we're talking about hard things. And in the middle of this conversation about hard things, James throws out this comment, hey, every, every good thing, every good gift, that, that comes from God. And we're kind of left scratching our heads thinking, like, what, what good thing is he talking about here? <laughs> right? We've already touched upon this. What's good about our trials? A apart from God's intervention in them, nothing is good about our trials. And I think James is reminding us that that there's a sense in which we can be thankful for the hard things that we walk through as Christians. Because in the midst of the hard things, it's God who's good. The hard thing may not be good, but in the hard thing, God is good. And in the hard thing, God is producing in you, like we talked about before, something that can't be produced in you apart from that hard thing. Praise God for that. And so he's reminding us, these good things, these good things, they come from God. And the fact that God can take the bad things in my life and redeem them, holy moly, that's good. I'm powerless to redeem the bad things in my life. And, and if there's no Christ involved in that, that, like, that sucks. It sucks to feel like you're in a position where you can't do anything. But because God is who he says he is and because he does what he says he can do, it's kind of freeing now to say that I'm powerless to redeem the bad things in my life. But God, God is faithful. God can and will redeem the things that I'm powerless to redeem. 
And so you know what? I don't have to lay awake at night wondering how I'm going to fix this or that. Because I know and I believe and I trust fully that God is working for my good when I can't even see what that good is. There's, that's a powerful truth, you guys. It's a powerful truth. We have an enemy who seeks, the Bible says, to kill, to steal, and to destroy us. But we have a God who can take those things and say, no, I'm not going to let those things kill you. I'm not going to let things be stolen from you. I'm not going to see you destroyed. I'm going to work for your good, and I'm going to redeem those things that seem irredeemable. And I'm going to do something that nobody else can do in the midst of it. And when we begin to think otherwise, James would say that we're deceived. We're deceived by our enemy when we give in to being killed, being stolen from, and being destroyed. Every good and perfect gift is from God. In other words, everything that we need comes from God. Everything that we need. And only good gifts come from God. Right? God, God can't be tempted. He's not a tempter. He's not evil. He's pure. He's holy. So that means that anything he gives you and me, it can't be anything but good. Think about that. If God is sovereign and if he ordains our lives, if there's not an atom that splits anywhere in the universe that's outside of his watchful eye, and if he cares for you and me, then anything and everything in the life of the Christian that, that happens to us, even the things that we would deem bad, they're good gifts from our Father because He's working in us to accomplish something that only He can accomplish. So everything we need comes from God. He only gives good gifts. I've said this before, it's not all about the end product, but it's every bit about the process as well. Right? God ordains the process in which we walk through this life working in us and working through us. And then James tells us that there is no changing in him. There's no shadow due to his shifting. Right? Mike mentioned this earlier. Earlier in the summer, everybody's over here to this side in the shade, and as the sun has moved and the planets rotated, our shade has shifted, and it, it's changed. There is no shifting and no changing with who God is. Hebrews 13 tells us that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he doesn't change. And so what God said yesterday, what God said thousands of years ago, what he will say thousands of years from now, should, should Christ return Terry, it doesn't change. It doesn't change. The, the promises that were written in, in this Bible that we read thousands of years ago still remain true today because God doesn't change. And if that's not enough, not only does he not change, but it says that, that he's brought us forth of his own will. That he has intentionally saved those whom he's saved. He's intentionally called those who have been called. If you're here today and you would say, yes, I'm a follower of Christ, it's because he's intentionally called you. He has brought you forth not of your will, not because you came to a point in your mind where, where you just thought, okay, being a Christian is the smart thing to do or the right thing to do. You're a follower of Christ because God said, you belong to me. 
And that had nothing to do with you. It had nothing to do with the decision that you made. It had nothing to do with your intellect, nothing to do with your will, everything to do with his will and who he is. And he brought us forth, it says, by the word of truth. We, we place a high emphasis on proclaiming the truth of the gospel because it's God's word that redeems. It's God's word that changes. It's God's word that effectually calls you and me to him. He brought us forth by the word of his truth. It says that we would be kind of a first fruits of his creatures. And that doesn't mean that we came first because obviously we didn't. There's people that have come long before us. But, but if you think about the idea of the harvest, the first fruits of the harvest were really kind of a promise of what's to come, right? When, when you get the, the very first grape off of the vine or you get the very first corn stalk out of the field, that, that's a promise that there's more to come, that there, there's more harvest to come. And so when James tells us that we would be kind of a first fruits of his creatures, the fact that God would save anybody, us irredeemable, messed up, sinful, broken, flawed human beings, the fact that God would save any of us shows that he'll save more of us. And so we engage in the ministry of the gospel, the work of the gospel, so that others can come to know Christ. Going back to Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says this in chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. So remember the your children of wrath, you're dead in your trespasses, you're, you have this nature with the rest of mankind that, that you're a broken sinner. Well, then the Apostle Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What an amazing truth, you guys, as we, as we bring this to a close. Every test, every trial that you face in life, if you're a follower of Christ, is not outside of the watchful eye of God. And not only is he paying attention, but he is purposing and ordaining in those tests and in those trials to work a good for you that could not be accomplished in any other way except for what you're going through right now. Charles Spurgeon says that if there were any other circumstance for you greater than the one that you're in now, then divine love would put you there. And so we rest at night, not saying that everything that happens is good, but we rest at night to know, especially in the bad things, that God is not only watching, but he's working and ordaining and purposing good in you and in me that could not be accomplished in any other way. And that's a good and perfect gift that only comes from him. Let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful for today. We're thankful that we can stand here and say that you're good. We're thankful for your goodness in our lives. We're thankful that you 
uh, allow us to persevere through sometimes some of the most difficult things that we can think imaginable. We're thankful that you love us and we're thankful that, that you and you alone can redeem the things that we're powerless to redeem. And so we rest in that truth. And I would pray for us today, all of us, including me, God, that you would remind us that, that you are our Redeemer. You are the Redeemer of the entirety of creation. God, help us to rest in the truth. Help us to trust that what you say to us is true. And we would pray together that as we walk through trials in this life, that you would build our faith, that you would grow our faith in a way uh, that's glorifying to you. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.